comes up, we will be discussing it. Um, but before we get into the study, uh, if you didn't bring your Bible or you don't have a Bible, please just raise your hand real quick and we'll get you a Bible. Um, put one in your hand so you can follow along with us. Everybody good tonight? Yeah? Awesome. You good, Luke? Yeah? I see your Bible, Mark. You can't trick me. Um, all right, if you would, please pray with me and we'll get into our study. Jesus, we uh, come before you and we thank you, Lord, for a time of worship and just drawing near to you as you prepare our hearts to dive into your word. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you would speak to us, that the words would uh, come off the page and pierce our hearts and uh, challenge us to apply some of these things to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would teach us... um, uh, a lot uh, through failure in this text and and, and learning uh, about what to do by seeing uh, uh, basically what we shouldn't do, uh, Lord. So I pray that you would speak to every one of us, God. Um, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, so last week, uh, we discussed Samuel's calling and that word call or calls or calling was mentioned 11 times. So we see the Lord was inspiring that chapter, if you will, to help us understand this concept of calling. But specifically, it was for Samuel. And we see that Samuel, he was called to first hear from the Lord, right? He was called to hear from the Lord and the Lord encountered him. And in that moment, after the fourth time, Samuel finally got it. He responded to God. And that's when his relationship started off with the Lord. You know, he had been ministering to God from age two or three to 12, but it wasn't until he was 12 years old that that relationship became his own. And now God calls him not just to hear from him, but he calls him to deliver a message. And it was a challenging message. It was a message of judgment, remember, to Eli and his whole household. And we see the boldness of Samuel. Though he was afraid, he ended up delivering this message, proving that he was worthy of the calling that God had placed on his life. Now, we're not going to see Samuel for the next few chapters. So the next three weeks, uh, Samuel's, uh, we don't know what he's doing. Uh, because the focus, the emphasis on chapters 4, 5, and 6 is really the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to see the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. Then it will later be returned in First uh, Samuel chapter 6. So that's the focus in these next three chapters. So the emphasis really isn't on leadership, though leadership will come up, but we'll discuss a few different topics in the next three weeks. In this chapter specifically, in First Samuel chapter 4, we're going to see that the Philistines come to battle against Israel. Now, the Philistines are both a picture or type of the flesh. They're also uh, an enemy of God's people. So they're also a picture of the enemy. And what we're going to discuss, what we're going to look at specifically in this chapter is how the enemy goes about fighting God's people and how God's people go about engaging in warfare against the enemy. We're really going to see how Israel did it and learn not to do what they did in this text, but we'll pull some positives out of it and we'll learn from the negatives. But ultimately the topic or title of this teaching is simply fighting the enemy, fighting the enemy. 
if you would with me in first Samuel chapter four, um, if you remember, we finished off in first Samuel chapter four, a it's weird how some of these chapters are separated because it's like, it should have been separated like a sentence away because first Samuel chapter four, a really closes out that third chapter and everything that was going on where it says in the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now it's going to a different scenario, a different setting in what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 4, B, you would call it. So pick it up with me there, 1 Samuel chapter 4, the second half of that verse in verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Now this is an interesting time period in history. We discuss throughout the Bible and even in history period, all these different great world powers, right? We had the Egyptians and we were talking about that as we entered into the end of Genesis. You had the Assyrians, you had the Babylonians, you had the, the, the Persians, you had the Greeks, you had the Romans. During this time period, there's not really like a prevalent world power. Um, there's a lot of kind of equal smaller powers and the Philistines are one of those. Okay. Um, so we see here the Philistines, they're the main enemies against God's people during this time period. We'll see throughout first and second Samuel, them go out to war against them, uh, several times, quite a few times. Uh, if you would with me, pick it up in first Samuel chapter four, verse two, it says, then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of the army in the field. So we see the Lord allowed the Philistines to defeat his people. This is interesting. Why would God let his people be defeated by their enemy? Well, we're going to discuss that further as we dive into the text. It was for several reasons, but the main reason you'll understand this later was because God was fulfilling a specific word, a specific promise that he made concerning the house of Eli. But as it pertains to us as believers, this can't happen to us. How can the enemy defeat us? How can the enemy defeat the Christian? Well, we know the battle has already been won. Colossians chapter 2 says that Jesus made a public spectacle of the enemy when he was nailed to the cross. So we have victory in Christ Jesus. First John chapter 5 verse 4 says just that. For whatever is born of God has overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So for the believer, we're already victorious over the enemy. But there's still a way that he can defeat us. How is that? He can only defeat us when we allow him to. That's point number one. The enemy can only defeat us if we let him. He can only defeat us if we let him. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that he can steal our souls. Um, that's not possible. Jesus says, uh, you can't pluck whatever's in my father's hand. We're sealed for the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter one. But in our lives, sometimes we can face defeat. And how do we face defeat? Well, it's when we give in. Maybe it's giving into temptation. Maybe it's giving into complacency in our spiritual walk. Maybe we're not walking with the Lord. He can defeat us when we're not completely depending on him to defend us. 
He can also defeat us when we're not using the tools that God's equipped us with. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6, we won't go into this in detail. In Ephesians chapter 6, we see the armor of God. And he goes into detail about what the armor of God is. But look at verse 10. It says this, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then he goes on to describe the armor of God. But it's so important that he encourages us to put on the armor of God. Meaning God offers us the armor, but it's our responsibility to put it on. If we're not putting it on, then we can expect to be defeated. Why would we not put the armor on? Pride. It's pride when we say, I don't think I need the armor. I don't think I need to get in the word today. I don't think I need to pray today. I don't think I need to put on the helmet of salvation and be secure in that. All those pieces of equipment God gives us so that we can be victorious in this life over the enemy. But if we're not using it, if we're not wearing it, then we can expect to be defeated. And it's just that pride that will lead us to defeat. It's like this. Anyone ever ride a motorcycle, drive a motorcycle? You wear your helmet? No, right? Okay, you don't wear your helmet, right? You know you probably should wear your helmet. Why? Because if you get in an accident and you don't have your helmet on, see ya. You probably aren't going to survive, right? But you have the helmet and you have the opportunity to wear the helmet, but you have to choose to wear the helmet. Now, for me to say I'm not going to wear the helmet... You might get away with it, but you might not. It's the same with the armor of God. It's there for us to use to protect us. But we have to choose to wear it. When we give in to pride and say, I'm not going to wear the protection that you've given me, then we're bound to fall. We're setting ourselves up for defeat. Pride will lead to just that. It will lead to our defeat. If you remember Peter in Luke chapter 22, that's exactly what happened to him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before the Lord died on the cross, timing is crucial. The Lord, he tries to warn Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, he says this, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. So he's saying, hey, dude, Satan is asking to to tear you up, Simon, please, I'm begging you. Look at what he says, verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He gave into pride. I'm ready to do all these things for you, Lord. You don't have to worry about me. Don't worry about praying for me. I'm going to be good. I got your back. And then in verse 34, the infamous verse, it says, then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. And what happened? Peter denied the Lord three times. He gave into pride. That pride led to his spiritual defeat, if you will. But, There's something encouraging. Remember what Jesus said in verse 32. But I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Though Peter gave way to pride and ultimately was defeated in that battle, if you will, he learned his lesson. And later he came back and he indeed strengthened the brethren. 
I believe personally in first Peter chapter five, that Peter is thinking about this specific event and everything that unfolded when he writes these things to the brethren, to the church in first Peter chapter five, verse six, he says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. See, Peter, though he was defeated in that battle, just as the Lord said, he returned to the faith, he strengthened the brethren. Now he's able to speak from experience. Hey, the Lord warned me to be humble. And I gave into pride and I was defeated. So I'm encouraging you humble yourselves because you have an adversary, the devil who walks about like a roaring lion, just waiting for that individual who thinks he stands because take heed uh, lest you fall. Right. As Paul tells us. So we see the only way really the enemy can defeat us is if we're not using the things that God has equipped us with with. And the only reason we wouldn't use them is because. Because of pride. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3 says this And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So listen to what they say. If we bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle, then we'll be able to defeat our enemies. The Ark of the Covenant, well, it represented the throne of God. Okay, you had the mercy seat and the cherubim inside the Ark of the Covenant. You had uh, the Torah or or the five the the stones with the Ten Commandments on it, not the entire thing. Uh, you also had Aaron's rod that miraculously budded. There was also a jar of manna in there, and this Ark of the Covenant. There's so much to it, but it represented God. The people are assuming that if they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle they'll be victorious now they didn't get this thought from nowhere the ark of the covenant had been brought into battle in the past moses brought it into battle against the midianites uh if you would remember joshua and jericho we'll even see later on both saul and david will bring the ark of the covenant into battle so we understand that they're getting these thoughts from scripture from history but their hope is misplaced look what they say First Samuel chapter four, the end of verse three, it says, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. They're literally putting their hope of salvation from the battle in the ark of the covenant. They're putting it in the Ark of the Covenant, but they're not putting it in God. They're looking to the Ark to save them. They're not looking to God to save them. Point number two, look to God and God alone. Look to God and God alone. They're putting their hope in something that represents God, but isn't God. See, we can fall into this too. We can put our hope in things that represent God, but aren't God. What do I mean? 
coming to church. If I just come to church, I'll be able to defeat my enemy. If I just uh, have this certain spiritual leader, yeah, if I just follow him and do what he tells me to do, I'll, I'll be good. I'll be able to overcome my enemy. If I just read the Bible every day, I'll be able to overcome my enemy. And we can put our hope in things that represent God, but aren't God. We can do it with the word of God. Yes, the word of God is living and powerful, but the word of God isn't God, okay? Jesus is the word, but that doesn't mean that Jesus is just the Bible. When you look at, in the beginning was the word, John chapter 1, verse 1, and the word was with God, and the word was God, we're looking at that Greek word logos, right? Yes, Jesus, he is He is the word of God, but that doesn't just mean that he's the Bible. When you look at logos, it came from a Greek word, obviously. Plato uh, was one of the originators, as well as some other Greek philosophers. And basically what the concept was, um, if we can have this idea of perfection but we can't see it, it must exist. So though I can think of this idea of perfection, but I can't see it, it likely exists. It just doesn't exist on this earth. So we came up with this idea, this perfect thought must exist in the heavens. Now this thought, logos, it was the foundation of life. It was the reason of existence, but it's basically a thought. The Hebrews took it a step further and they said, if there's a perfect thought, that's the foundation of all existence, the reason of all existence, that thought must come from a thinker, right? And that thinker is the word, right? It's a person. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. What's the point? See, sometimes we can fall into this thing where we're putting our hope in things that represent God, but they're not God. For example, with the word too, we can put our confidence in our understanding of the Bible. We can put our confidence in our knowledge of the word of God, our interpretations of the word of God. But that can be dangerous. Why? Because that's exactly what the Pharisees did. And that's exactly what Jesus rebuked them for. Many times, I'll give you one example. In John chapter 5, In John chapter 5, Jesus says this. Verse 39. He says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. He's saying, You're searching the scriptures, but you're not seeing me in the scriptures. It's the separation of the word of God and the relationship with God. They must come together. Now, the word of God, obviously, you know, my love for it. It's such a crucial avenue to seek relationship with God. But the things have to come together. Our pursuit of God through the word has to be just that. It's not I just get in the word in the mornings to check it off my to-do list and I'm putting my hope in my devotion life. No, the word of God is our powerful living and powerful tool to seek God, to engage with God. But it has to be just that. We couldn't put our hope in some religious system or to-do list or something that represents God. No, those things don't save us. It's not our knowledge of the word that saves us. It's our knowledge of the Lord, that gnosko, that experiential, intimate knowledge. See, our knowledge of the world, word, 
it doesn't save us from the enemy either. What do I mean? (laughs) I have conversations with people all the time, and, and sometimes they'll say, if I can just recite this verse that connects to this sin that I keep falling into, I'll be good. I'll be able to overcome my enemy. If I can just think of the right scripture in the right moment, then I'll be able to overcome. But that's not necessarily true. Perfect example. Let's look at Jesus, right? In Luke chapter 4, when the enemy tempts him. When the enemy tempts Jesus in the wilderness, what happens? Three times, Jesus defends him with what? The word of God. But Jesus didn't overcome the enemy by reciting scripture. He overcame the enemy by submitting to it. He walked in it. See, he was receiving direction from the Lord. He didn't just say a scripture and poof, enemy gone. No, no, no. He was walking in that scripture. He was living that scripture. See, the people of God, the Israelites in this chapter, their hope, it's misplaced. They're putting their hope in something that represents God, but they're lacking personal relationship with God. I believe if they were putting their hope in God, if they were listening to him, remember, no one was hearing from the Lord. If they were hearing from him, if they were walking in what he was asking them to do, then they may have had victory in this situation. But that's not what happens. They were defeated. It says that first battle, 4,000 men fell. First Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of, of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. So we see the Ark of the Covenant comes, right? Hophni and Phinehas are corrupt leaders carrying this Ark. Yeah, we talked about their corruption. Okay, they're doing something right. Why? Because the priests were supposed to carry the ark, yeah? Moses, God received from Moses. It was only the Levites that were supposed to carry the ark. But they're doing the wrong thing the right way, right? They're doing the wrong thing because they're putting their hope in the ark and they're leading their people to put their hope in the ark, but they're not leading their people to put their hope in God. Remember, they led the people to abhor the worship of God. They were leading people astray from God. So now... They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant just as the people wanted. And it says, verse 5, as the Ark enters camp, Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now, I don't know what this would have been like, right? People, thousands of people shouting so that the earth shook. That would probably intimidate me, right? But it's all noise and no power. See, Our noise can't compensate for power. Point number three, noise doesn't compensate for power. They're still going to be defeated. What do I mean? Our noise and zeal and passion can't compensate for genuine faith or real power. We can appear confident and passionate about the things of God. But time will tell if those things are sincere, if there's true faith, if there's true power backing those things up. Paul discusses this, speaking to the young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says this, verse 5. 
having a speaking of, of, of people that will come in the, at the end of time. He says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power and from such people turn away. Meaning there's people, they, they look it, they talk the talk, they appear to walk the walk, but they don't have the power. It's a form of religiosity, but it's not real. It's just noise. It's just an appearance, but there's no substance to it. There are those that appear to be godly. There are those that appear to have so much faith in the Lord. Think if you were on the other side and you heard the Israelites screaming like this. You'd be like, man, they got faith in their God. But time will tell they don't have faith in their God. They have faith in the Ark of the Covenant, but they don't have faith in God. They don't have relationship with God. See, same goes for us. We can get loud. We can appear passionate, but again, time will tell if faith is genuine, if the power is real. We see this even in the church. In Acts chapter 19, Paul, while on one of his missionary journeys, in Acts chapter 19, he comes to the church of Ephesus and he notices something, something missing in the church. Look what he says. Acts chapter 19, verse 2. Let's read verse 1 just to get context. It says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, These are disciples. Listen, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. What? These are disciples. These are believers. But they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. How does Paul know this? The church is missing power. It's lacking power. There's something missing. He, they're missing the power of the Holy Spirit. They might have faith in God, but they're missing that power. They knew the gospel, but they were missing the power of the Holy Spirit. Is your zeal and passion for the Lord backed up by the power of the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you experienced that in your life. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize it. People have different experiences with the Holy Spirit and I can't get into all the different ways the Holy Spirit works and manifests itself. We would talk about it forever, but to keep it simply, you'll know if you have the Holy Spirit, if there's fruit in your life, if you're producing fruit, right? In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it says just that. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? So if these character qualities are being produced in your life, then that's evident that the Holy Spirit is in your life. When you look at all those words that are summed up there, it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, then all those other words describe what love is. So if we have love, that's evidence. Hey, the Spirit is at work in our lives. Paul later defines love In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the first thing he says is this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am like sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. What's he saying? I can have all these, uh, all, all these tongues. I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. I can say all these things, but if it's not backed up by love, then it's all noise. 
It's just noise. See, the people, they're loud. They're making the earth shake, but it's just noise because it's not backed up by power. It's not backed up by a sincere relationship with the Lord. First Samuel chapter 4, verse 6. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So they've heard the stories of the Exodus. They hear the shouting. They know the ark is coming. They just wiped out 4,000 Israelites, but now they have some fear. But look what happens. That fear is short-lived in verse 9. Then it says, be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. I don't know who it was, if it was a group or it was the leader. Someone saw that it was all noise and no power. He saw that their faith was misplaced. He saw that the faith faith was was fake. It was false. Point number four, the enemy knows when our faith is fake. The enemy knows when our faith is fake. He goes, strap up, boys. Be confident. Have courage. We just wiped out 4,000. I believe we can get some more. Our enemy does know when our faith is fake. In Acts chapter 19, again, I should have told you to hold your place there. I didn't either. In Acts chapter 19, The same trip we see in verse 13, the sons of Sceva, look what happens. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we exercise you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they hear the power in the name of Jesus. So they're, they don't have a relationship with Jesus. They, they just hear the power. They're like, wow, Paul's doing all this stuff. We're going to use that power to exercise demons. So there's these group of, of brothers, sons of Sceva, verse 14 also there were seven sons of Sceva a Jewish chief priest who did so and the evil spirit answered and said Jesus I know and Paul I know but who are you he says who are you guys there's no power behind your words your faith it's not in Jesus You're just trying to use the power that Paul used. You hear him use Jesus and exercise demons. So you're just trying to use that same power, but you don't personally know Jesus. And look what they do in verse 16. Look what this demon demon does. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They got beat up by the spirit. Why? Because their faith was fake. It was false. The enemy caught it. He goes, yeah, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Would the enemy say that about you? Does the enemy know your name? Is the enemy threatened by your walk? See, this scripture, we see if we know the Lord, if we have that tight-knit relationship with him, the enemy is going to know who we are. The sons of Sceva 
They were defeated because they didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. There was no substance to their faith. Their faith was false. It was fake. The enemy, he should be threatened by our walks. When he hears our name, it's not like hearing the name of Jesus, but he identifies it with the name of Jesus. He connects our name to the name of Jesus, just as he did with Paul. Jesus I know, and Paul I know. The enemy only knew Paul because Paul knew Jesus. And that's the same as it should be for us. If our names aren't connected to the Lord, as far as the enemy is concerned, we're going to be just like the sons of Sceva. He's going to whoop up on us. He's going to kick our butts, if you will. I just said that. That's <laughs> what happened. Sorry, Lord, forgive me. But the truth is, he's not going to be fooled by false faith. The Philistines, they hear the noise. At first, they're afraid. But someone, we don't know who, speaks up and say, hey, be strong. Conduct yourselves like men. This fight, this battle is not over. And the Philistines, verse 10, they continue to fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated and every man tied to his tent. There was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. So it says the first battle, they lost 4,000. This battle, they lost 30,000. It was getting worse before it got better. But look what happens. The Philistines fought them and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. We see the Israelites, they literally flee in fear. They were afraid of the enemy. In Proverbs chapter 28, in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, it says this. I'll read it for you. If you don't get there in time, don't worry, I'm just about there. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1 says this, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Do you see that with the Israelites here? No, they're not as bold as a lion. Why? Because they're not righteous. They're lacking righteousness because they're lacking relationship with the Lord. And that's the root of their problem. They're lacking love from the Lord because they're lacking relationship with the Lord. And we know that perfect love casts out fear. They're afraid because they're not abiding in the perfect love of God. There's a disconnection with that relationship. So they flee from the enemy. They're not abiding in his perfect love. First Samuel chapter four, verse 11. Also, the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. So we see the ark of God, it is captured. Um, there's actually ancient ruins that they found in that area that, that talks about this specific event taking place, which is really cool. In the 1970s, they found an inscription of this battle, the ark being captured, and Hophni and Phinehas, their names are even mentioned. So this is obviously a historical event that took place that we have absolute proof of. But we see the craziest thing happened. The Ark of God was captured. The Ark of God was captured. That was like the most significant thing that represented God. Okay, It sat in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And God allowed it to be captured. Why? Several reasons, and we'll discuss a little more in a second. But the people, they put their hope in the Ark of the Covenant. And again, they weren't putting their hope in God. And sometimes... 
when our hope is misplaced, when we put our hope in something other than God and we make an idol even out of something that represents God but isn't God, we can expect him to take it away from us. We see him do this time and time again throughout scripture. Even in the book of Ezekiel, during the Babylonian exile, if you will, one of the more disturbing chapters in the Bible, I'll read it for you. Ezekiel, he had it rough. Ezekiel chapter 24, to teach the people of Israel a specific lesson about what God was going to do concerning the temple. Look at what happens. Ezekiel chapter 24, verse 16. Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you will shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning and evening my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. Literally, God had Ezekiel's wife die to teach Israel a specific lesson. Listen to the lesson, verse 19. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things signify to us that you behave so? Then he answered them, the word of the Lord came to me saying, speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, I will profane my sanctuary. Speaking of the temple, my, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. He's speaking of the temple. See the people, they were worshiping idols in the temple. They were actually making the temple an idol, something that represented God. They began to make that God. And God said, If you have any other God before me, if you put your hope in something other than me, then I might have to take that thing away from you so that your hope isn't misplaced. Because if our hope is in anything other than God, then that hope will disappoint. But when our hope is in God, that's a hope that will never disappoint. He wants us to have hope in the right thing and the only thing, and that's him. So God, he allows the ark to be captured because he's trying to teach the people a valuable lesson. But not only that, look at the second part of verse 11, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 11. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they died. Remember, God had sent the man of God to speak to Eli concerning his sons to correct them. And then again, uh, God told Samuel to tell Eli what was going to happen to his household and that his sons would die. So we see that God was ultimately allowing the Ark of the Covenant to be taken to fulfill his word. He said Hophni and Phinehas were going to die. He knew they would be the priests carrying the ark. So he allowed the ark to get captured for multiple reasons. But one of the big ones was so that he would fulfill his word. Now, this is crazy when you think about the lengths that God is willing to go to to fulfill his word. Think about what this meant to the people. The children of Israel, they're hopeless. His people are hopeless. Again, their hope is misplaced. But the Philistines think that their gods are greater than the God. See, God was willing to suffer shame and it appeared for him to suffer defeat just so that he would fulfill his word. That's how important his word is to him. He'll let it look like he was defeated or that he suffered shame, but it was also that he could fulfill this promise that he made that Hophni and Phinehas would be judged. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 12, 
Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. So we see this man of Benjamin running from the battle line that same day. Now where they're having the battle in Aphek and where Shiloh is, that's 20 miles away. So this is a pretty long distance for this young man to run. Jewish tradition says that this young man is King Saul. There's no way for us to know that for sure. Interesting thought. Anyways, this man, he runs, he delivers this message to Eli. What's Eli doing? He's sitting on a seat. He's always sitting down. Every time we see him, he's always sitting down. We'll talk about that in a second. So he comes into the city. He cries out, verse 14. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. So look what happens. He comes, this man, whether it's Saul or just some other young man, He comes, he delivers this message to Eli. It wasn't that Hophni and Phinehas died, okay? That's not what startled him. He already knew that was going to happen. What he didn't know that was going to happen was that the ark was going to be captured. When he hears that the ark is captured, that's when he falls off his seat and literally breaks his neck, fulfilling the word from the Lord that Eli would be judged along with his household. But it's interesting that we find Eli sitting once again. Now, I'll give him a little uh, a little credit. He's 98 years old, right? He's an old man. He can't see, right? But every time we see Eli, he's always sitting down. It's like three, four, or five times at this point. He's always sitting down. See, when we give into laziness, comfort, and complacency, it can lead to our destruction. What do I mean? In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 32, it says just that. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 32 says, For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Okay, we know he died because of his response. The point I'm trying to make here is when we give in to compromise, when we're always sitting around, when we choose to be lazy in our spiritual walk, we're heading down a disastrous road. The Bible, don't be complacent. And it's not just working physically, maybe at your job, but spiritually. Don't be complacent in your spiritual walk. Don't just sit around waiting for something to happen. Make something happen. See, the Lord, He's constantly challenging us to get out of our comfort zone. Why? protect us from complacency 
to protect us from laziness because he knows when we fall into comfort and complacency, it leads to our demise. That's why the Lord constantly challenges us. Get out of your comfort zone. Do something that you're not used to, whatever that may be. Maybe it's adding spiritual disciplines. Maybe it's sharing your faith. Maybe it's repenting from a specific sin, whatever it is, going to a specific place. I know there's many in the church that's going to El Salvador. Some of them, that's their first mission trip ever and you know what i believe that god's calling them to come yes for the work they're going to do there but to get out of their comfort zone see when you go on a mission trip you end up changing more than the change that you bring why because you're doing something you're not used to you're putting yourself out there you're taking a step of faith you're walking in obedience and when we do that it gives God a, a great chance to work and he'll, he'll, he'll mold our hearts, he'll change us, he'll challenge us in so many different areas and you always come back so excited, so passionate, yes, about what you saw him do, but also about the work that he did in you. See, Eli, we see this habit of him always, always sitting around. I give it to him, he's 98 years old, but, it, but we see it constantly throughout the last four chapters. First Samuel chapter four, verse 19 now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. This is a rough day for her, right? She's lost her husband. She lost her brother-in-law. She lost her father-in-law. Verse 20. And about the time of her death, so she dies giving birth, the woman who stood by her said to her, do not fear for you have born a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of their father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Okay, she's making the assumption that because the ark of God was captured, God's glory departed. But the reality of it is, it's because God's glory departed that the ark was captured. See, the people were in a dark place. They weren't hearing from God. They weren't seeking God. God's glory had already left them. Now, I don't believe that God's glory completely left them. God will never leave us nor forsake us. I don't believe God's glory completely departed. I believe God's glory was, was getting restarted, if you will. See, God was using all these things. He was using this judgment upon Israel to bring them into a season of light, into a season of repentance, into a season where they were laying down their idols. And we'll see that in 1 Samuel chapter 7. But we see that God wasn't leaving his people. He was testing his people. And he was testing his people for their own good. Fifth and final point, quick one. God's testing is his grace. God's testing is his grace. He's testing his people again for their own good. It is their grace. They're assuming that he's left them, but he hasn't left them. He's just trying to help them and he has to walk them through through a difficult time, through discipline, through judgment, if you will, so that the people will get the point and return back to them, to him. See, we see God do this time and time again. Actually, we see God use the enemy 
in people's lives to challenge them, to test them, to grow them. He did it with Job, right? He does it with his people consistently. We see it with the Babylonian exile. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 29, this verse that everybody likes to quote, but you got to look at the verse before. Look at context. Jeremiah chapter 29 now, we know the people were worshiping idols, same time as Ezekiel and Daniel. There's a lot of prophets during this time. <laughs> See, the people were, were worshiping idols. They, they weren't truly seeking the Lord. Jeremiah had this message, basically, you need to submit, you need to surrender to the discipline from the Lord through your enemy and the person of Nebuchadnezzar in the uh, country of Babylon, if you will, the world power at that time. And it was a form of discipline for the people, but it was God ultimately trying to get their attention. He was ultimately trying to clean house. Jeremiah 29, look at verse 10 before we read verse 11. He says, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, 70 years? Yeah, they would be held captive in Babylon for 70 years. This was their judgment. This was their discipline from the Lord. I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. How many of you hear Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11? God wants to give you a future and a hope. Context? He says, after you walk through 70 years of discipline, then I'm going to give you a future and a hope. But you have to walk through this first, and then you're going to get that. Because you're not going to appreciate the future and the hope if you don't learn your lesson this time and turn from your ways and turn back to me. See, God, he'll use the enemy to teach us lessons. He tests us because he loves us. He wants to grow us. Yes, he has a plan for us. Yes, he has a purpose. Yes, he has all these things for us. But so often he has to get us ready, prepare us for those things so that we don't mess it up. Now, we know the Israelites, much of this they brought on themselves and God He was allowing them to experience great loss, but he was allowing them to experience great loss. So later in a few chapters, they could experience great grace and they would, they would enjoy it. Imagine if they bring the Ark of the Covenant and God says, okay, Philistines wiped out miraculously. What are the people going to do? They're going to go back to the same thing they've been doing, not seeking God and having a misplaced hope. God is testing them. He's challenging them to bring them back as well. He's cleaning house because he had to get rid of Hophni and Phinehas so he could establish Samuel as a leader, right? Samuel's only 12 years old. We don't know how long this is after that, but he has to put Samuel in that position of power because Samuel is the one leader in this uh, text that actually knows the Lord. Again, see God, just as he used the Philistines uh, in this chapter to test Israel, but ultimately so that he could give them hope, so that he could give them a plan and a future. Same goes again for us. The Lord will sometimes use the enemy in our life to challenge us, to discipline us. And it's a crazy thing to think about. But sometimes we go through spiritual warfare and we don't know why. Now the Israelites brought this upon themselves. 
And we don't always bring spiritual warfare upon our, ourselves, right? Just like Job, he was righteous. He was the most righteous man in all the land. He didn't bring that spiritual warfare upon himself. God was using him as an example. And there's a lot to that. But sometimes we'll go through spiritual warfare for the same purpose that God allowed these people to go through warfare. And what was that? To bring the people back to God. To, to bring them to that place of dependence, to bring them to that further place of intimacy. Sometimes when things are easy, when we're not going through difficulty, our relationship with the Lord, sometimes it's, it's slacking. And the Lord will allow things to come into our path. He'll even allow the enemy sometimes to, 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 to get in there and get involved and do certain things to get our attention, that we would turn back to the Lord. Maybe, maybe you're going through spiritual warfare right now. Maybe you feel like you're wrestling with the enemy and, and maybe you, you have no idea why. You're just going through it and you're just tired of it. You want to be delivered from it, but maybe it's happening because God's trying to bring you to that further place of intimacy that you would come back to him and come back to him in a way that maybe you never have before. See, God... He allowed his people to lose this battle, but he was ultimately preparing them to win the war. And that's so often what God will do with us. Sometimes we'll lose these little battles or we'll feel like we lose this little battle. God's ultimate goal is that we would win the war. Now we know as believers that war has already been won. We are victorious in Christ, but sometimes God will use spiritual warfare to get our attention so that we would rest in the victory that has already been won for us in Christ Jesus. See, the Israelites, they fought against their enemy. They didn't do it exactly the way that God would instruct us to do it. We can learn both from their successes and their failures. We may not have the Philistines to worry about, but we do have an enemy that's out to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Yes, the victory's already been won, but God, again, will bring us to that place of dependence though, so that we're truly leaning on him to defend us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, God, I, I pray that if there's anyone in here that's walking through any type of spiritual warfare, God, if, if, if they feel like they're in a battle that they're losing, uh, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would encourage them. God, that you would uh, let them know that you, you have their back and, and that you've already won, that, that the victory's already been accomplished. God, and I pray um, for those that are fighting that, that you would encourage them to use the tools that you've equipped them with or that we would put on the armor of God and we would be able to not just know that we're victorious, but walk in victory. In Jesus' name, amen.